So our scripture reading today is from Philippians 2 and calls our attention to Jesus. Hear the word of the Lord. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Now I'm gonna invite Bernard up. Thank you, Denise. Well, good morning, all. What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So one day, uh, the disciples followed Jesus into a boat uh, to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to escape the crowds. And uh, suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. And the terrified disciples woke Jesus up. Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Jesus rebuked their lack of faith and then rebuked the winds and the waves and it was calm. And then uh, Jesus said, to, uh, um, then the amazed disciples asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. What kind of man is this? Surely only God controls the winds and the waves. So was God present in the boat with the disciples? What kind of man is Jesus? And people have been asking this question ever since that uh, encounter of the disciples with Jesus. And it's a question that the book of Hebrews explores in depth. And yet Jesus is not mentioned until chapter two, verse nine. And here in chapter one that we're looking at, the focus is on the identity of the son and of his relationship with God. Now the identity of the son and the identity of Jesus are related and Hebrews will eventually bring the two of these together. And discussion of their identities reached a climax in the fourth and the fifth centuries in the first four ecumenical councils when the church gathered together to debate exactly this. Who is the son and who is Jesus? And their deliberations drew heavily upon the book of Hebrews and especially upon these opening few verses of chapter one that we're looking at. So over the next few sermons, we're gonna be considering the identity of the son and the identity of Jesus. Who is the son? Who is Jesus? Who is the son in relation to God? And who is Jesus in relation to us and in relation to God? Now last week we started exploring this long opening sentence of Hebrews chapter one, which uh, runs for the first four verses. So here it is again. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he created the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So we began exploring this magnificent sentence last week. And uh, in that sermon entitled, God Had Spoken, we looked at the first verse and a half in which we have these two great acts of God speaking. He spoke in the past to Israel of old through the prophets in many different ways. But in the last days, these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And uh, the past was the era of promise. God spoke promises to Abraham, to Moses, to David. And it seemed that those, and these were promises that were sealed by covenant. And these promises seemed to have their fulfillment. For example, in Isaac and in Solomon. But these people failed to live up to the promise. Fulfillment was just partial and temporary. But in these last days, God has spoken in his son. Indeed, it was this God speaking in his son that marked the arrival of these last days, the age of fulfillment. And all who hear what God has spoken in his son and enter into these last days in which the promises are being fulfilled in the son. God has spoken in his son. And now the sentence pivots on this word, son. He is the focus of the remaining two-thirds of the sentence, uh, verses 2b through to 4. And the author describes the son in seven sentences. Now, this is a little hard to discern in English translations, which uh, break up the sentence, this extremely long sentence, into multiple short sentences. But there are structural clues in the Greek that indicate that we have seven statements here. God is the subject of the first two statements, but the focus is still on the Son. And the first statement is this, whom he appointed heir of all things. Now, inheritance is father-son language. In the ancient world, and still in some societies today, it was the oldest son who was the heir of, uh, to the father. Now it's common for younger sons and for daughters to also be heirs. And behind this statement here lies Psalm 2, which was a coronation psalm for the Davidic king of Israel, where we read, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So under the Davidic covenant, the king was in a father-son relationship to God. And here we read that God's intentions were to expand the king's rule beyond just Israel to the ends of the earth and all the nations. But of the son here in Hebrews 1 verse 2, God grants him title 
not just to Israel, not just to the nations, not just to the ends of the earth, but to all things, the entire creation. And here we are looking ahead to the end of time when the Son will be ruler of all. It will all belong to the Son at the end, is how Eugene Peterson renders this in the message, which I think is just right. So that's the first statement. The second statement looks in the opposite direction, back to the distant past, and through whom also he made the universe. So here we see that the sun was the agent of God's creative activity at the very beginning. As we read last week in John's prologue, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. And in the Christ hymn in Colossians, we read that the Son is the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. So God is the subject of these first two statements, but the Son is the focus. And it's a comprehensive view of what God has done in and through the Son. He has appointed the Son of the heir of all things with a view to the future and has created all things through the Son in the distant past. Now for the remainder of the sentence, the remaining five statements, the Son is the subject. And the third statement is, has two parts to it. In verse three, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So the Son is the perfect image of God in two ways. Firstly, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. Well, what do we mean by glory? If I were to ask you, please explain what glory is, um, it's a little bit difficult. Uh, it's a very important biblical concept, both Old and New Testaments. It's a hard concept to pin down, and one way of thinking of it is that it is pure light. God is light. And God dwells in impenetrable light, that blazing light. And the sun is the radiance of that light, the shining forth of that light. He is, as it were, that light made visible. Speaking of the eternal word made incarnate, John writes again, looking at that, the prologue to that gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now in the Old Testament, God's glory came, filled the most holy place in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And there it was contained. It was shielded from human view, or rather humans were shielded from it uh, because of its intense brightness. And here John's choice of this word for dwelt evokes that indwelling of the glory cloud in the Holy of Holies. Now the glory had departed from the temple prior to its destruction. But now, John says, the glory has returned. Not in a building, but in a person. In the word incarnate, in Jesus. So, yes, God was present in the boat with the disciples. Jesus was God among us, Emmanuel. And the second way in which the Son perfectly images the Father is that he is the exact representation of his being. Now this word exact representation is the Greek word character, from which we get our English word character. And it refers to the stamping of an image onto a coin. And uh, the die would contain usually a, 
an impression, an image of the king or the emperor, and that is stamped onto the coin, authenticating this coin and certifying, as it were. So that was a perfect impression. And here we're told that the sun exactly and faithfully mirrors the fundamental reality of God, his very being. He is the image of the invisible God. We read again in the Colossian hymn. Now God created human beings to, in his image to represent him in the world he had created, something that they have done imperfectly. But the sun is the perfect image of God, something far superior to created humans. And during the fourth century, there was much debate about this identity between father and son. As I said, it drew heavily upon this uh, opening verse, uh, opening sentence of Hebrews to formulate that. And um, the result was the language in the Nicene Creed. The only son of God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, of one being with the father. So the creed confesses this closest possible identity between father and son, light from light. They are distinct and yet they are one. So the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The fourth statement about the sun is this, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So not only was the sun the agent of creation in the beginning and will be Lord of creation at the end, but in the middle, he keeps all of creation going. So what sustains the universe? Well, particle physicists and cosmologists are eager to discover what sustains the universe. And uh, the current thinking, the current standard model requires 25 different fundamental physical constants for it to work. Uh, now, as fundamental constants, they can't be derived from anything else, which also means they can't really be explained. They just are. And it takes 25 of these for the standard model to work. Nor can the standard model explain everything. Uh, it can't explain gravity. Hence the quest uh, among cosmologists and particle physicists for a grand unified theory. Now, what has become clear in recent decades is how finely tuned the universe is in terms of these 25 constants. That if they were just slightly different, the universe wouldn't work. The cosmos couldn't exist. Uh, some physicists get around this by proposing a multiverse, not the metaverse, a multiverse of multiple, an infinite number of universes. Uh, and if you have an infinite number of universes, anything is possible. Even whales and petunias falling from the sky. It's sort of like an infinite probability drive. Um, well, I better stop there, otherwise I'll... I'll get completely out of my depth in trying to conceive what a multiverse is. Um, but scripture presents uh, that the eternal son is the sustainer of the universe. In him, it all hangs together. This says this here in Hebrews, also in the Colossian Christ hymn, that in him all things hold together. And in Ephesians chapter one, we're told of God's purpose in Christ to bring unity to all things under Christ. So the sun is front and center in God's administration of his cosmos, at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. The sun 
sustains all things by his powerful word. The fifth statement is this. After he had provided purification for sins. Now in ancient Israel, purification for sins was the task for the priests. They offered sacrifices, they sprinkled blood, they prescribed cleansing rituals, and they could pronounce purity. But the blood of bulls and goats could never accomplish full atonement for Israel's sins. The work of the priests was never done. A better priest and a better offering was needed. Where could these be found? A better priest and a better offering. Well, God provided by speaking in his son. The son became human. We'll read in the next chapter, chapter two, verse 17. He had to be made like them, that is like Abraham's descendants, the Jews, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The son entered Israel's history as Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now reference there to Messiah, we think immediately of king. Yes, that's part of uh, Jesus' role is to be the true king. But the central chapters of Hebrews are devoted to his ministry as high priest, as a great high priest, better than all the former high priests. And Jesus, the better priest, offered up a better sacrifice to accomplish true purification from sins. He offered up himself. So he was both the offerer and the offering, and he was superior in both respects. And he thereby accomplished such a great salvation. So the son provided purification from sins. The sixth statement is the main clause about the son. It's got the main verb in it. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is the focus, as it were, of all the other six statements. Having accomplished purification for sins through his own shed blood, the son sat down at the right hand of God in the highest. He sat down as high priest because his sacrificial ministry was finished. He had offered the one full and sufficient sacrifice himself. And he sat down as king, enthroned at God's right hand now, I think we don't pay enough attention to Ascension Day. We pay attention to Good Friday and to Easter. Uh, we don't pay enough attention to Ascension Day or indeed to Pentecost 10 days after that. So Ascension Day, 40 days after Easter, it's the day of the Son's investiture and enthronement. Now, here we are in a presidential republic, so you might not really understand what an investiture and enthronement is. Uh, got rid of the king a long time ago. Uh, back in 1969, uh, Prince Charles was invested by his mother as the Prince of Wales, as the crown prince, the heir apparent to the British throne. And uh, after his investiture ceremony, which investiture literally means putting on robes, putting on vestments, he took his seat at the queen's right hand, as you'll see there on the right. <laughs> He's still there. Uh, 53 years later, um, still the crown prince, still the heir apparent to the British throne. Um, 
And then in 1972, I was in Bangkok during the investiture of Prince Vajralongkorn as the uh, crown prince, as heir to the Thai throne, which was then uh, occupied by uh, his father Bumabol. Uh, he ended up reigning for over 70 years. Uh, but after 44 years, Vajralongkorn ascended to the throne as King Rama X. And both of these investitures were huge events in the UK and in Thailand at the time. Um, I just happened to be in, in Bangkok as opposed to up country with my parents, uh, and I got to read all the coverage in the Bangkok Post, and there was uh, this lengthy insert, full color pictures and, and of that. So um, within a mon monarchy, investiture of the crown prince is a big deal. Well, here we have that the sun sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven invested with heavenly rule. And then finally, the seventh statement in verse four. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. He became superior to the angels, implying that previously he was not. And yet surely the son had been superior in the beginning. Why had he become inferior to the angels? Well, we can trace the son's path this way. As the one through whom all things were created, including the angels, which are created heavenly beings, the eternal son was always superior to the angels. But he gave up his status and became lower than them as a human being, incarnate as Jesus. And so in chapter two, verse nine, when we first read the name Jesus, we'll read that Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little while. And then at his ascension, he became superior again, but he did not put off his humanity at the ascension. So the exalted son is the exalted Jesus Christ. A human being has entered into God's very presence. It is a human being who is crowned with glory and honor at the right hand of God. And his superior status is matched by a superior name that he has inherited. And this now brackets the first statement that God appointed the son heir of all things in fulfillment of his promise to David. Now this trajectory of the son is also described in our scripture reading from Philippians chapter two, which also ends with a name. Where we read of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself further, further even than a human by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he went even another level deeper, into the realm of dead humanity, into the realm of the dead. Therefore, because he had taken this path, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what is the name that the son has inherited? the name that God has given the risen and ascended Christ Jesus? Well, there are several possible answers. Is it the name Jesus? 
the Philippian hymn there states that it's at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Now Jesus was a significant name, Yeshua or Yehoshua, which is Joshua, meaning Yahweh saves. But it was, this was the name placed upon him at birth, and even, even before birth, when the angel told Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua was a common name, and still is a common name today in Spanish, Jesus. So I don't think it's the name Jesus. In the Philippian hymn, the name is given at the ascension, not at the birth of Jesus. And it is probably the name, well, the title Lord. Jesus has been exalted so that all will eventually acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what does it mean to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord? Lord is a very significant name. God's personal name as revealed to Moses at the burning bush and by which he was known to the Israelites was something like Yahweh. But so concerned were Jews about not profaning that name that they stopped saying it. They ceased pronouncing it. It was too sacred to speak aloud. Instead, they said Adonai, which means Lord, or it can also mean master or sir. And uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament rendered this as kurios, which has the same range of meaning, Lord or Master or Sir. So for a Jew to acknowledge Jesus Christ as kurios, Lord, was to affirm an identity between Jesus Christ and Yahweh, Israel's God. And Jewish Christians did this without compromising their monotheism their staunch belief that there is only one God. And then for a Gentile to confess Jesus Christ is Lord was to affirm that others who claimed the title were not Lord at all. So who was claiming that they were Lord? Well, it was the Roman emperor, the Caesar. So for a Gentile Christian to declare Jesus is Lord was to say, Christ is Lord, Caesar is not. So, could be the name Lord. But I think there's a third option. The inheritance of the superior name is mentioned immediately after the session at God's right hand and echoes the appointment of the Son as heir of all things in the first statement. So I think we should look at God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, where he promised David a great name. Now, the Davidic covenant involved a wordplay between house and name. David was a man after God's own heart, and so after the Lord had given David rest from all his enemies, while David was living comfortably in his house, that is, his palace, he wanted to build a house that is a temple for the Ark of the Covenant, which at that point was just in a tent. But through the prophet Nathan, the Lord replied that David would not build a house, a temple for the Lord. Instead, the Lord would build David a house, namely a dynasty, dynastic line of sons. And the Lord said, I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And the Lord promised David a son, 
I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. David's son Solomon did indeed build a magnificent house for the Lord, the temple where God placed his name. But Solomon failed to live up to fulfillment of the promise. But the risen and ascended Jesus did fulfill the promise as the son of David. And when he took his seat and inherited the name, he fulfilled God's promise, I will make your name great. So in receiving this name, it's a combination of fulfillment of the promise of a Davidic king uh, and that the one who is enthroned on, David, on the true throne of David is also uh, the Lord. Now I wanna say a few words about the image I'm using for this sermon series, Christ Before Us. And this type of image is uh, called a Christ Pantocrator, Christ the ruler of all. And it's uh, very common in the iconography of the Eastern Church. Uh, and this particular one is a beautiful 12th, 12th century mosaic in uh, the cathedral in Cefalu in uh, Sicily. And uh, it had long been on my bucket list to see and I was finally able to see it uh, 10 years ago. Um, now the Pantocrator image is usually placed high up in a church. And this one is in the half dome uh, above the apse at the very front of the cathedral. Christ's face is stern, and he seems so high up and so far off, just like a distant emperor. But this is not the perspective of Hebrews. Yes, Christ is seated in glory as ruler of all, but he is also seated as the great high priest. He has finished his high priestly work of offering a sacrifice of purification from sins, but he continues his high priestly ministry. He remains a compassionate and faithful high priest. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. He is able to help us. We can therefore approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Yes, God was in the boat with the disciples. Jesus' action in stilling the storm, ruling creation, showed that God was present among them and present in Jesus. But now, Jesus is present at God's right hand as both king and high priest. When God spoke in Jesus, God was present among humanity. But now that Jesus has been exalted, humanity is present with God. Initially, one human being the risen Lord Jesus, but carrying our names with him. The Hebrews finally ties together the identities of the Son and of Jesus in chapter four. We read, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So how do we hold firmly to the faith we profess? by having Christ before us, by setting our gaze upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by considering him. And this is what Hebrews does again and again and again, put Christ before us. And secondly, 
by encouraging one another. In chapter 10, we read, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. We are brothers and sisters together. Today is Connection Sunday, and there are tables outside showcasing the many different ways to connect with one another so that we can encourage one another to hold fast to the faith that we profess. But first, in wrapping this up, because these seven statements about the Son were so important during the first four ecumenical councils, I would like us to recite together the Nicene Creed, the product of those first two councils. Now, some of you have been with me in Istanbul when we have stood in the very place where the Nicene Creed was finalized, uh, stood in a circle and together recited the creed. Um, so, I'm uh, going to invite the band to come up, and as they do that, I invite us all to let us stand and profess our faith um, in one God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the Spirit. So, the Nicene Creed. Follow me. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now, as you go and uh, learn of all the ways to connect and have fellowship with one another, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God who is for us in Christ Jesus and the fellowship, the participation of the Holy Spirit rest upon you and remain with us now and forevermore. Amen.